Hello, my name is Ben. Hello, my name is Tracy. And we are your hosts for this week's episode of the Too Vague Podcast. So how is Chicago treating you, Tracy? Chicago is, I, I don't know if you saw, there was a recent um, international article okay. uh, that named Chicago as one of the top cities in the world in which to live in when you look at cost of living and things to do. Oh, wow. That seems new. It's, it's a great city. I remember when I lived in Crystal Lake, going out to Chicago and just having so much to do. I thought that people were associating Chicago with crime more than they were associating it with excellent cultural experiences. Yes. A lot of big cities oh, yeah. get associated with crime, unfairly, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. Is there crime? Yes. Is there an inordinate amount of crime that makes the city completely unlivable? I would say traffic makes the city more unlivable <laughs> than... Yeah. I, I like being on the water. I mean, I live in a suburb, but I think one of the amenities that Chicago has to offer is that it's beautiful Lake Michigan. Oh, yeah. So you're not actually on the water right now. You're not recording in a boat. I am not. Well, I have a retaining pond in oh. my backyard. So technically, so, I am on the water. Theoretically. But not on Lake... No, no. I have water in my backyard. So you're on... I, have, I can... I I see. Well, there's not the geese are not out right now, mm. but the frogs are uh, out, and we have all sorts of nature in our backyard. So it's a that's cool. That's very cool. Not to get too far off on how awesome Chicago I was is. Because... Say, this might not be the direction that you wanted <laughs> this show to go in. Let's introduce the word. So the word this week that I have prepared especially for Tracy is the word. Role, not to be confused with the role of a couple of episodes ago, which is R O L L, but this one is role as an R O L E. Tracy, yes, what do you think of when I say role? Yes, there are roles on television, roles in movies, mm -hmm. but for me, when I think of the word role, I think of an RPG, a role playing game. Clearly, it's kind of hard not to think of role-playing games if you're of a certain nerd quotient. I don't know how to how to explain it. My NQ is very high. Thank yeah. you very. Thank you for noticing. Yeah, excellent, excellent. <laughs> is that what it is? NQ, nerd quotient. NQ, my yeah. NQ, my yeah. nerd quotient. I think of that as well. Not only that, but John on the on the show that he was on last week mentioned the phrase "role player." As in, in high school, he was a role player on his uh, lacrosse team. And and I also mm. think of it in that context as a position or something that you do in a group, just a, a job that you do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of... In the role of whatever the group needs. Exactly. Like, you know, you've got your forwards or you got your backs or you got your whatever but then also that fits into the work environment what is your role at work what do you do for mm -hmm. your work similar to job but i guess it's not as specific or it can be yeah i would guess some roles require a certain amount of expertise you can't just they're not completely interchangeable right uh, the people not completely interchangeable mm -hmm. uh, the more roles you can the more hats you can wear at your place of business uh, presumably the more valuable you are. Yeah. I always wondered about hats because I don't, you know, I understand wearing hats. Wearing hats at work. 
Yeah, I I never when wore... there really aren't any hats at work. I never see anybody wearing a hat at work. Yeah, exactly. But we always talk about how many hats can you wear? Like literally wear hats. Yeah, where do you think that came from? Yeah, I I don't know what the derivation of that came from. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Because usually all the really weird idiomatic expressions come from you know medieval times or someplace in England, and I'm so I'm trying to think back you know to some yeah madcap your queen who was forever going to the, the millinery shop and getting a bunch of different hats and then exactly. forcing everybody to wear them. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's a nice bowler you have on today. Exactly. And I think of odd job now the, from, uh, from James Bond yeah, with yeah. the razor hat. Bowler. Yeah. I think it's used just because it's something that's visual that allows you to understand what you mean by, wearing a different hat because you have a different job. Like some military origin where a captain would wear one kind of hat and a sergeant would wear a different kind of hat and a general would wear a different kind of hat so that from afar you could tell who was doing who was supposed to be doing what. That makes sense. That's my story. That stands to reason. I think that would be we can confirm this later. I know how much uh you didn't want Hopefully to prepare for the show. That would allow us to yeah. um, access all of the some knowledge of humanity. Yeah, if only if only we had that at our disposal. Oh well. Our finger as it were. Oh well, later. <laughs> I'll go to the library later and look it up. Exactly. Consult the Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever. Exactly. That would be the one. To summarize our dictionary definition of role, you have it's a noun, an actor's part to play in a movie or a play. A part to play in a play. <laughs> Did you ever do any acting when you were younger? Well, I uh, was the understudy for Mammy Yoko in Little Abner. Did another play oh, okay. in high school. Yeah. I did a play in college. I want to say it was a Chekhov comedy. Oh, wow. I, you have to keep in mind that I went to a nerd college okay. i went to university of missouri rala which is not called that anymore now it's called missouri university of science technology which just ups the nerd quotient it's nq goes through the roof when they renamed it <laughs> it's also too vague but it's not really renowned for its theater program is what i'm trying to say okay and so it was it was relatively easy for anybody to get a part in anything right. that they did. There right. was really no no competition. It was, a, it was kind of a low bar. Exactly. When I was living in L.A., I did some extra work, but I did not act, okay. per se. Did you, like, extra stuff? Or show up for extra roles? Yes. Or? I was an extra on such shows as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, sweet. Boston wasn't. Oh wait, wasn't called Boston Legal. Is that the one with James Spader? Is that uh, James Spader and the um... incarnation of it of Boston Legal before it was Boston Legal? Now I'm having a brain meltdown. I can't remember. Shoot, I did that show. Yeah, I did Seventh Heaven. Oh, I was sweet. an extra on that show. Yeah, I was an extra on this show on Fox about the five orphans. Can't remember the name of it. Oh, um. Something not Melrose Place. It was uh, Party no. of Five. Was it Party of Five? Party of Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what the big clue was? The five kids. The five. That might encompass 
my career as an extra. Career as an extra. Can you can you have a career as an extra? I guess you can be a career extra. You know. You can, so you they man, I can't remember if they I think they were paying minimum wage mm. to be an extra and they had to feed you. And it would be really hard to make a living as an extra. Yeah. But if you were if you were doing it every day, oh wait, I did something else. Was on some show where I had to go to the JPL fiddly D. Can't remember. Anyway, it would be really hard. You'd have to really work hard every day. You know, be going to uh, to be an extra on something every day. Hmm. Um, but I think you probably could make enough to scrape by. I only had one opportunity to be in a movie when I was going to community college. A couple of folks in my calculus class said. We're going to ditch class on Tuesday and we're going to go to Woodstock because they're filming a Bill Murray movie over there and we're going to be extras. Do you want to come with us? And I said, no, that's that's okay. I got to study my math. And that movie was Groundhog's Day. Have you been kicking yourself ever since? No, not really. <laughs> Doing that kind of thing, it's an experience, right? I don't think I ever really wanted to be in the public eye or in a movie specifically it'd just be oh yeah that's kind of fun yeah that's really what it is it's just silliness and fun to be yeah. an extra in a tv show or a movie i do that all now on my podcast instead so i don't have to be an extra in any movie there you go. an extra is also a role it's someone that you need in the background that lends to the story in a movie or a television show mm-hmm and then, of course, also the other noun, functioned, assumed, or part played by a person or thing in a particular situation. So that's the other thing like we talked about with role player. And the origin, I thought, was kind of interesting on this, too. Early 17th century from the French. Do you know any French? No. No? No? No. I, I don't either. From the French role or rule, I don't know what the little hat on the O means. The role. Zen. Rule. The role. I don't know. You know, this is this is all very, very offensive to French people, so I'm going to stop. But anyway, role is from the French word role. And the obsolete form of role that had a U in it is connected to a role, R-O-L-L, referring to the role of paper where an actor's part was written. Oh. So that is where role yeah. sort of comes from. Oh, I like that. Role-playing games, which I'm guessing you like playing the manual ones more than the computer-based ones, or is that incorrect? These days, I probably do about half and half. I am involved in... Now, I will say computers make playing, quote-unquote, manual games so much easier. Right. And because of, because of Roll20 and the internet... I'm able to play a lot more. I'm trying to think, you know, what's a, what's a good way to say, you know, in-person D&D versus the immersive D&D where you're playing against the computer. Right, I mean, right. Or even Zoom. I mean, people do this type of thing over Zoom and on Twitch where they play role-playing games. We had to do that at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Some friends and I were playing, had been playing D&D Pathfinder, the adventure card game. Okay. And we've been playing it in person. 
Right. So it's a role-playing game, but it's also a card game. Right. We'd been playing it in person for a few years. And then when the pandemic hit, it was like, well, we can't be in person anymore, mm-hmm. but let's use Zoom. So we would, you know, have a Zoom session where ahead of time, I would scan all of the cards that were going to be used in that session. And then would have them loaded up and sharing my screen. Mm-hmm. We were able to play that way. Now, I'm sure that sure rule 20 would have done a better job of it or even tabletop simulator. But... You had to improvise anyway. It was That was pretty much the word for the pandemic was improvise, right? So Zoom was the tool for that. Yeah. Did you find that you lost anything through that as far as that experience doing it through Zoom as opposed to in person? Or... Was it more or less enjoyable? What are your thoughts on on that? We were able to play the game effectively. Mm-hmm. A particular game is is a very cooperative game. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of table talk in terms of what should my character do? Should I do X Y Z or you know should I set try and set up the, up the next character's turn by doing uh, C D E or whatever? So there's a lot of strategy and stuff. And we didn't lose anything in our ability to play the game and win mm-hmm. um and anybody who has lived through the pandemic and had to do stuff over zoom will tell you that it's not as fun or effective method of communication right. as being in the same room with a another person is mm-hmm. there's just so much that gets communicated with nuance gestures and facial mm-hmm. expressions yep. that zoom cannot accommodate so we lost that but i would say it was a pretty good substitute mm-hmm. when the alternative was not to That's see those people or interact with those people or play at all yeah. it was a darned effective substitute and i'm kind of curious about that pathfinder game this isn't like traditional dungeons and dragons but it does take elements and you said you had to prepare the cards is that like you have to build a deck that you're going to use throughout your adventure or how, how does that work? So it's very much based on D and D and that you have roles, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your traditional roles. Oh, you're going to play a rogue. You're going to play a paladin. You're going to play a, a sorcerer or a, a bard. Right. And you would put together a deck of cards um, and there are different card types, mm-hmm. weapons, items, uh, blessings, spells. Right. And you, you get a certain number of each type of card depending on your class. Mm-hmm. So you've got your your character deck. And then you've got the location decks that you're going up against. Okay. And so there are half a dozen, six or eight locations, and each station has its own deck that you count. Okay, so who prepares those decks? Are those, like, pre-prepared, or you just shuffle them and put them there? Or is there, like, a dungeon master, like a traditional sort of, you know, Dungeons & Dragons session where they prepare the decks that you're going to fight against? So we were playing Rise of the Rune Lords, which is a self-contained box of cards that is used to drive 50 or 60 different scenarios. Okay. And so you've got a few dozen locations, and in any given scenario, you're going to be working with six or eight locations. Okay. And each location 
on a location card, it tells you what you need to build that location. You have to have three random monsters, two random blessings, two random barriers, a weapon, a spell. You know, you have to have some what they call banes and boons okay. in each location. So it tells you how to build a deck. And so somebody has to go into the Rise of the Rune Lord's box and choose these different location cards mm -hmm. and the, uh, the different card types to fill the locations and you're doing it blind you know you're dealing cards out face down so that you can't see them so that you can play right, right. Uh, you can be one of the adventurers playing the game but it does require the scenario decks the decks that are going to be used for that scenario to be assembled prior to the actual game but once once you've put all those decks together, it runs itself because all of the instructions are on the different cards that you're drawing. I mean, it's very much like magic in that a magic card game has a structure that every turn follows. The Pathfinder adventure card game has a structure that every turn follows. Okay. And when you draw the card and encounter the card, the card tells you what to do and how the encounter gets resolved. Yeah, the game drives itself. So people can people can set it up and then participate, and it doesn't require an outside person arbitrating. The DM, the, so to speak, right? The DM. It's yeah. not required to DM. The DM is, is the box of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a very well put together, well thought out game. I mean, we've been playing different box sets mm -hmm. for years now so like whenever a new one comes out you, you guys buy it and, and well, there, it <laughs> there's no there's no new ones like we're having oh. to go back <laughs> on the internet and go oh my god can i get can we get uh the mummy uh can we get the box of mummies off of ebay because we can't we can't get them new any there's no new stuff at least i am not aware of any that they're developing any new adventures is that wizards of the coast who i guess it has to be wizards of the coast pathfinder is a dungeons and dragons branded product so i, th I guess it has to be was here's a question i have about that you mentioned you have a class right mm -hmm. and you get different cards based on that class or you get a, a selection of cards based on that class now, how much actual role playing is there when you are playing this card game? Is there, you know, back when I was playing games, a role playing would be it would be more of an acting sort of thing where you would be behaving like that character as you designed them and the dungeon master could kind of police you as far as whether or not you were acting the way how they would act in one situation or another. Is that something that you bring to the card game? Is like a role-playing sort of thing? Like The group that I play with is made up of two serious gamers. Okay. And then people that are in our lives who are playing this game because they love us. <laughs> Me and Jim. Okay. Uh, so my spouse, his sister, his partner, you know, they're playing game because they like to get together and have the social aspect of it and this is a game that does not require you to be so immersed right in the character mm -hmm. you can be if you want to be yeah. and if that's not your bag you don't have to be and it can still be enjoyable you, you can still feel like you are contributing to the success of the party Right. So my friend Jim, you know, he reads the flavor text on all the cards and he's and he's providing context and sort of explanations 
you could be very mechanical about it. You could be, you could say, all right, um, I'm going to go to the location of the dungeon and I'm going to draw a card. I'm going to explore. I'm going to draw on a car- card and, oh, I encountered a ghoul. Okay, I'm going to reveal my battle axe and attack the ghoul. I have to succeed at a combat roll of 13 in order to defeat the ghoul. So I get out my my, my dice and I make my roll. Yay! I defeated the ghoul. It, it could be that that uh, almost clinical step by step. The most of. clinical encounter ever, or. You know, it can be, I'm sneaking around the dungeon, and I'm going to go ahead and peer around a corner. Oh, I spy a ghoul. Okay, well, let I, being a paladin, despise ghouls. This this creature must be incinerated or sent back to the foul pit from whence it came, yeah. uh, never to rise uh, again. And to, to accomplish that task, I will implore Pelura, my goddess, uh, to imbue me with her spirit, and I will take my trusty battle axe that I have named Kevin, and <laughs> I will charge the ghoul, right. yelling, Be gone, foul monster! Yeah. Yeah. So Die it's... now! So... I mean, it, right. So it can be, you know, it can be whatever you want all it to along. be. Yeah. Honestly, to me, that sounds like your friend is is providing those DM sort of flourishes that make a successful. Definitely. Yeah. He's been, he comes from that school of role playing and he's been a DM for many, many different types of role playing games and um, board games and whatnot. So he likes to figure out the way that sort of explains, hey, what just happened in the context of this scenario right. that has been crafted for sort of an acting kind of thing where he's actually bringing his character to life you bet also something like that that's a card game too you mentioned the ways of playing it as long as each type of player is open to the other person's type of play it's more inclusive in that sense it's not like you're being forced to or not forced but you know what i mean like you have to play this role within the bounds of how you set it up and and what your alignment is and it can be restrictive and some people just want to have fun and they can't really have fun when they're trying to think of all these creative ways some people some people enjoy that though right as your character progresses and becomes more experienced you get additional skills you get additional powers you get additional cards that are added to your deck you know more power cards mm-hmm. so your options of what you can do in a particular encounter expand right and sometimes it's kind of you know it can be very and we only play once a month. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can be like, wait a minute, I got a new power a couple of sessions ago. What's my new power? And you, you're like, wait, what does that open up for me? Mm-hmm. And so it can be mentally very stimulating to try and keep track of just what your character is capable of. Right. By itself is enough to keep you engaged and challenged. And if you want to you know, add an additional layer of role playing right rping we used to call it back in the mmorpg days it's it's are you playing your character as a user at the end of a computer or are you playing the character like how they would be now to your point you mentioned is there a dm who's sort of policing 
holding you to account. Hmm. Are you playing your character as a lawful good character, or are you really kind of neutral? Because hmm. if you're playing a kind of neutral, you're going to not get as many experience points. Right. So in a game like Pathfinder, there is no one who's doing that. Right. And there's nobody forcing you to play the character that you've decided you want to play. Right. It really is on you. You know, you picked the bard class, mm-hmm. so play like a bard. If the group sees that that's not being played that way, they can they can mention that. But this is like a cooperative multiplayer game, right? It's a totally cooperative. So you, you do get positive reinforcement if you're playing the paladin and your paladin and you're and you decide that you're going to gallop in from the next location over right. and intercept the, the ghoul that just jumped out and attacked one of your party members. Right. You feel good when you do that. Yeah. Right. That's one of your special abilities. So heck yeah, I'm going to do it. Who knows when you can rescue Kevin next? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I will say Kevin is kind of prone to get into trouble. So rescuing Kevin, uh... opportunities to rec- rescue Kevin happen. When you're a blade, that always happens. <laughs> you're never the understanding blade. You're always the aggressive. <laughs> Is there a map? Is there like a traditional dungeon, like pen and paper kind of on graph paper? Not with Pathfinder. Okay. It's strictly cards. Yeah. So you've got six to eight locations, and right. each location has 10 cards stacked in front of it. And you have your character figure, mm-hmm. and that character figure is standing next to the the pile for right. that particular location. Right. And you say, I'm going to explore in the dungeons. I'm going to explore in the temple. I'm going to explore in the abattoir. Right. And then you draw a card. That's the gameplay loop. No, there's no map. What is the re- replayability, would you say, on this Pathfinder game? It sounds like it's different each time just because you have different people who play as different characters. And I'm guessing it lasts over several sessions, right? It's like end-to-end is it like what 10 hours of of investment or 20 or 40 or so each adventure box has i think six adventure decks that you buy for. so you get the big box and then there are the adventure decks that are separate and i think there's six for each big box okay and each adventure deck has i think five scenarios in it so there's 30 scenarios give or take for each adventure box and we play one scenario a month and we are lollygaggers when we play right and so it usually takes us six or seven hours to get i mean we have to set aside a saturday mm-hmm. when we're gaming right and you know some of that's because we take a meal break and you know we spend some time catching up and blah 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 it takes us two and a half years to get through a box <laughs> so we you know and we've done Rise of the Rune Lords and Wrath of the Righteous, and uh, there was another. So we've been playing for years now. Okay. I think we're down to our last adventure box, and there might actually be stuff online that we could get, you know, individual scenarios off a website or something. But then also there are probably homebrew stuff now, too, that that people who are really big fans of it can kind of make their own scenarios or make their own decks of cards or whatever the end of this box which we won't get to for another couple of years because we just started it uh-huh. but at the end of the box run now we could probably go back to the first box wrath of the righteous mm-hmm. and play it 
again, probably play it without remembering too much of what we did the first time. Yeah. Because there is a story arc, but honest to God, I couldn't tell you what our goal was for that. If we chose different, and, and you have options. So yes, you've got a class, you want to be the paladin class. There are four or five individual paladins from which to choose. Mm -hmm. And so you could go back and you could say, all right, the first time I played Wrath of the Righteous, I was a paladin, but now I'm going to try being a magic user. And because the locations for each scenario are going to stay the same, but the cards uh, assigned to that location for that scenario are going to change because they're drawn randomly from the box. Say it has a high level of playability. replayability. If it lasts so long, that's a good point. It's like you put, put away a game for a long period of time, sometimes... It is fresh when you bring it back. But I'm guessing, unlike traditional sort of role-playing or game scenarios, or Dungeons & Dragons, for example, since we're since we're on that. And by the way, Wizards of the Coast, if you're listening, put out a new box set for, for Tracy, please. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so there's no endings. It's the ending that you choose, right? It's, it's like you go through the scenarios, and after you're done with the scenario, that's the ending. It's not like... There's a story and you have 17 different endings like you would in something like a computer game. There actually is a story. One of the box sets uh, is your entire storyline is closing the wound of the world. Okay. Uh, this rift that has been made between the world and the, and the abyss. And so you're having to do all these scenarios where you're running around trying to patch up this wound of the world. Right. And at the very end, you do succeed or you don't. What do you, what happens if you don't? And then you have to do it again. If you don't succeed in one scenario, you just replay it. You have to. I mean, you get, there is a time limit. Each scenario has a villain with some henchmen. And mm -hmm. so your objective is to defeat the villain within 30 turns. Well, I should say the number of turns that you have depends on the number of people who are playing. We always play with uh, five people, and mm -hmm. so we always get 30 turns to find the villain and defeat the villain. But every time you play it, you get a little bit better. How much strategy is there in playing this game? You're kind of at the mercy of the deck as opposed to having a strategy and utilizing that strategy to defeat things. Is Am I misunderstanding what, what you're doing here? There Definitely is some strategy involved. Okay. Like when we first started playing, we would say, okay, um, I, I did an encounter, that's the end of my turn. Right. And when you take that approach, you run out of time. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is you have to do multiple explorations on each turn that you get if you want to have a chance of finding all of the henchmen, defeating all the henchmen, and finding and cornering the villain. Now, right. some of it is random. Right. Um, because if the villain is shuffled to the bottom of the last location that you find mm -hmm. or that you um, explore, you might not have enough time to find the villain. And mm -hmm. maybe the villain is on the third location, in the third location that you explore. There definitely is strategy. There's strategy in, in how you arrange yourself around the table. Mm -hmm. For us, we always want to have the paladin and the bard sitting one right after the other, and they almost always are at the same location because right. the, the bard is a support character, right? right? right. Bard's there to buff other characters, and so you don't want to have the bard off 
moseying around exploring by themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of table talk where you say, well, if you finish exploring here, do we want to have you go off to that location? Or do we want to have you go to this other location where if we close this other location, it gives us a benefit in attacking whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, the next type of monster. So there definitely is strategy that's, you know, the same strategy that's employed no matter what scenario you're doing, which is like put the bard and the paladin together. Right. Um, and then there's situational strategy about, should I explore again right now? Because if I encounter a monster, I just have Kevin. I don't have anything to buff Kevin with. I just, it's only Kevin. It's only giving me, and if it's, so it's, a, it's a bad monster, the bad monster might kick me and Kevin's butt because nobody else has any cards on the table that they can throw my way to help support me. Okay. So there's strategy that's pretty consistent no matter what scenario you're doing. And then there is situational strategy. strategy. Okay. Is this the only game that you play or do you play other types of games, non-role-playing? I was a big Pandemic fan. Mm-hmm. I never want to play Pandemic again ever. <laughs> Too real. Right. Another board game that I really like playing is Betrayal at the House on the Hill, I think is what what it's called. Okay. And it's so that's a game that has that's got incredible amount of replayability. Right. The premise is, you know, you're basically Scooby Doo gang mm-hmm. exploring in a haunted house. Okay. You're all wandering around finding different parts of the house. And then at some point one of you turns traitor and tries to kill the others. Oh wow. So it's a co op game up to a point. And then one of the players a completely random series of happenings mm-hmm. that determines who's going to be the traitor in that particular instance of the game. And then everybody else is still playing the cooperative game except for the, the traitor. There are, I think there's 50 different betrayal scenarios. Are you familiar with the video game Among Us? So, dang it. Um, I've heard of it. Yeah. It's a video game? I thought it... They may have a version of it that isn't, but it became really popular online during the pandemic. But it's it's a similar yes. kind of thing where you've got people who are traders and each person is looking at their own screen, right? So they can only see what they're doing and people get assigned the trader role and they're trying to sabotage the ship while everyone else is mm-hmm. trying to fix the ship and... What happens is when, you know, the the trader is supposed to kill people off and stuff. And then you have, once they found some, find someone who's, who's dead, they have a big meeting and everyone talks about, tries to sell, like who's, who's the, I saw this guy over here and I'm pretty sure that he murdered the whatever, but it's like, it's a game where you're trying to convince people that you're not the trader. And I think that was just kind of a very special kind of. I mean, it came out in 2018, but it, I remember when the pandemic started, it just became really yeah, popular overnight. Yeah, there was a lot. Of, I can remember thinking, oh, I, I would probably like that game, and I just never... It's it's probably one of those where it's it's only as fun as the group of people you play with, because, you know, if you've got people yeah. who are really not good at lying, I guess. <laughs> I am not the traitor. Why do you think I am the traitor? I was over here doing the thing with the other stuff. You, you, and that's the other thing you had to do. You had to learn how the ship kind of works so you could be descriptive enough to say, oh, I was in this room doing this thing, not 
killing off. Let's just keep on using Kevin. Yeah. Because Kevin's been a sword, he's been a dude, and now he's uh, one of the dead bodies now in Among Us. Is it sort of this game that you're talking about? It sounds very um, similar, except in Among Us, somebody's assigned the traitor rule from the get-go, and in Betrayal in the House on the Hill... You don't know. Everybody's good friends and buddies at the start of the game. Right. And you keep exploring, you keep exploring, stuff keeps happening, and you you keep making these periodic haunt rolls. Mm-hmm. And at some point, a haunt roll will trigger the betrayal. And then depending on who triggered the roll and what room they were in and what omen card they were holding, mm-hmm. that goes into a matrix that determines who the traitor is. Okay. It, it, the person who triggers the haunt might not end up being the traitor. So it sounds like there's definitely some similarities. But Among Us clearly is just designed to be very simple. It's uncommon for it to to last more than five minutes per round where you're, it's only lasting as long as it takes to have the meeting and explain yourself and, and eventually after you vote enough people off, you're, you're trying to convince people you didn't do it so you didn't get voted off and jettison into space. Betrayal requires a significant investment of time. You got to carve out two or three hours to play the game. Right. So it's, it does require investment. At the end of the game, does anyone ever say, and it would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids? <laughs> does anyone rip their face off? Um, I don't know that they would understand that reference. No, nope, probably not. But I <laughs> Probably not. We should play. Ben, you and I should play. So are you someone who is always on the lookout for new and interesting games? Or are you just really into playing games and other people kind of introduce you to what the games are? It's not like you're on a hunt. What usually happens is I will be reading some. I'm an avid reader of boingboing.net. Okay. And they often talk about games okay uh but you know they do some kind of review of games and i'm like oh that one sounds like a good one so i'll look at it and that's how i found out about code names and oh a friend of Debs and mine um introduced us to betrayal on mm-hmm. the house of the hill and that guy john is a big he is a big gamer he the the first description you said which was always on the hunt for a new game yeah i try and keep my eyes and ears open but i don't go to boardgamegeek.com every week. The only equivalent I remember was the um, Games Magazine issue where oh. they had all the, the top 100 games of the year. That's what I think of when I think of any of these websites where it's like, oh, try this game or try that game is the Games Magazine. Did you ever uh, read Games Magazine when you were younger? Well, you said Games Magazine, but I was thinking when you said Magazine, I was like, oh, Dragon Magazine. Scene. oh there's also dragon. dragon yeah magazine. that's that's rp yeah that's right so, so i was like oh yeah i remember that games magazine was more of a part puzzle book and part games that you could look at and play but they had a a regular issue where every year they would put a whole bunch of different types of game pieces onto a cover and then you would try to figure out what each piece was, and if you got the whole list of all the, you know, like the hundred games they have on the cover, correct, and was the first one to send it in, you'd win all of those games. They would be board games and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And they've got a lot of really cool board game shows. I usually go to this little 
convention called uh, Penny Arcade Expo. I try and go every year, but I haven't gone for the last two years for obvious reasons. And I'm probably not going to go this year. I'm going to give it another year and see see what happens. I go for video games and talking to gamers and meeting those people and seeing the latest games that are coming out. But they also have a very big tabletop sort of gamer segment. And Penny Arcade even has a convention called PAX Unplugged, which is all board games. But it's, you know, their whole thing is a, it's sort of a community of people who really love video games and board games get together and have fun for a weekend. And it's really kind of cool. People will bring their their board games as far as ones they've created and show off their new board games and have people play them, you know, maybe play test. So, and where is that? Uh, is that in Arizona where you are? Penny Arcade? No, Penny Arcade Expo uh, usually happens in, uh, in uh, Seattle. Um, they have oh, one. Okay. Yeah. They have one in Boston too. They now have a PAX East and a PAX South, which I believe is Austin, but it started out in Seattle it was very much a it was started by two guys Gabe and Tycho who created a Penny Arcade comic and were real big video game geeks but it's kind of like they've kind of let go of the reins and it's now sort of its own thing owned by a different company but they put it on the same way it's like it's a safe place for people who are gamers to just get together and, and geek out and talk about video games and see some of the new stuff coming out. So, so it happens during Labor Day weekend and it's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not a huge crowds person. I get a little bit of anxiety, but as long as I come in with a plan as to which exhibits I'm going to hit, I'm usually okay. Is that something you'd be interested in going to at any point? Or are you just kind of like, eh, I just like playing these games and that's that's fun enough for me, figuring out when... You had asked me about that prior to the pandemic. Uh-huh. I would have said yes, because I, I love conventions. Right. I mean, I've been to Gen Con a couple times. Um, actually went to Comic Con a few years ago. Back in my college days, I used to do a lot more. Yeah. I also like being around people who like to play games. Mm-hmm. But ah, pandemic just has, had, just has me rethinking being in person right. for gaming. So I, I probably, and I have to be, you know, I have to be careful because I, I do like to game a lot. And if I'm not careful, then I will spend time gaming when I ought to be spending time doing other things right. that I need to do them among friends it's fine but among strangers i mean i would say having people over i wouldn't have people over unless i trusted them to let me know i mean there's a risk involved in that anyway oh yeah yeah but i mean at least they are people i can trust that kind of thing it's not like you're you can invite every random person to come over and play i guess i would i it could be uh I don't want to say dangerous in the sense of I'm fearful for my physical safety, but dangerous in the sense that I, if I start playing games online, mm-hmm. I could spend too much time playing games online right. and not enough time working right. or maintaining my house. Right. Or, so you're afraid you know, of the addiction having part of it. Or social, social interaction yeah. with people who are, you know, that I live with. Right. kind of thing yeah so that's my main concern about gaming too okay. much yeah 
But you're right. If there was a PAX that you wanted to go to that was, well, it, it sounded like you said PAX was West Coast, East Coast, and South, yeah. which leaves Chicago North. out of Yeah, well, I North. mean, you know, eventually. No PAX North. I mean, I can't see a North place that you would want to have it other than Chicago. So if there ever becomes a PAX North, right. you know, that could be an option. Like I said, it's like even by myself, I had a lot of fun attending. It's just, you know, they even have panels and stuff with mm -hmm. people who are game designers or people who are in the industry, all sorts of interesting people, their viewpoints on working in news in the gaming industry or as a woman, how to navigate this industry, which is ridiculous because it really bugs me when people say anything about someone's being different and saying, oh, that person can't be a gamer because they're whatever. It's just annoying because games are for everyone. They should be for everyone, period, and a sentence. They should be for fun. And anyone can have fun with a game. So don't be a jerk about it when, when someone says they're a gamer. And Do you ever get any, any shade because you're a woman at playing games? I don't think you would. Not, but I will say I don't. Put my, I mean, I don't do a lot of first-person shooter games, and I'm not on the internet yeah. interacting with people that I don't know. Yeah. I think that segment of nerd culture, the board game, the tabletop segment, is much more accepting of anyone as opposed to a lot of video games, which is first-person shooter folks. They maybe have those types of biases, but it's still – it just – ridiculous to me that you would call yourself a real gamer because you play one game but someone who plays another type of game or enjoys another type of game isn't a quote-unquote real gamer it's just so silly to me I agree. let's get into i mean we were already kind of getting into video games anyway we're talking about tabletop i wanted to tell you about a game that i'm playing right now uh which is called stray stray is a game just came out july 19th Blue 12 Studios created this game, and it was published by Annapurna Interactive. The whole premise is you're playing as a, from the perspective of a cat, and it is a third-person perspective, and it's very heavy in the – kind of reminds me of like point-and-click adventure games from back in the day uh -huh. where you would uh -huh. you know find objects and interact with certain people and solve puzzles. and So it's, it's very much like that, but in a 3D environment. And playing as a cat, listen, I can totally understand why cats knock stuff down off of shelves now. Because every time I get the option to knock something off, like a paint can off a roof or whatever, boy. You get experience points for that? No. There are no role-playing elements in this game. I only say it because it's a unique role that we seldom play or a unique perspective, right? It's not a role-playing mm -hmm. game. It's an adventure game. But it is from the perspective of a cat who is helping a robot. And some people have said cats wouldn't help anyone. I was like, well, I don't know, man. I think you're giving cats a bad rap, but whatever. It's helping robots. Oh, that is my jam. I so want to. <laughs> what's the name? Stray? Stray. Gotta, Actually, gotta... you know what? You could probably find it. Yeah, you'll you'll probably be able to find it on Steam. Okay. If that's where you got the other game we're going to talk about, yeah. Disco Elysium. But let me just say, it's not a role-playing game. It is a third-person platformer type of game. There are some action-y elements, but they are all puzzle-solving, trying to get from point A to point B in a certain way. Sounds um, a little bit like Myths. Not as puzzle-heavy. Okay. 
Okay. It's very friendly to anyone who wants to play it as opposed to some of those games like Myst got two, like I'm going to stump the person who, who does this. They have yeah. to figure out this this code to this lock by going to these different places and looking at this tree or whatever. It's very much like a lower tier of that. But a lot of the things, you know, you're, you're finding hidden objects, you're trying to find all these. You, just the story itself, though, it's very short. It's about probably end to end three, four hours tops, unless you want to like look for every single thing and collect all the different things. It'll go up a few hours, like prob- but probably it's a, like a six hour experience. If you're a completionist, mm-hmm. maybe a three hour experience. If you just play the story and that's it. Mm-hmm. Very unique, a lot of fun. A lot of people saying it's great. I'm being a little hard on it myself because I wanted more cat stuff. I wanted more creative cat things. I wanted something like, you know, like maybe territorial things or maybe something where as a part of this adventure you need to eat so you got to hunt. Maybe you can get really creative with the way the cat sees the world in a first-person perspective when he's hunting or maybe sense of smell leading you to different places. But for what it is, it's, it's a fun game. It's just I wish there was more to it. But Stray 2 could have some. Perhaps. It takes a very special game for me to see the sequel and and want more. I I would rather something new and wholly unique. But yeah, I mean, Stray 2, it would be be something interesting if this gets as much recognition as I think it's going to. And that will bring up another game, which I recommend to you. Something else role-playing. I believe it was Game of the Year on several Game Award shows, uh, Disco Elysium, which came out in 2019, published by a company called ZA slash UM. It's a role-playing game, which is non-traditional because you don't really have any fighting mechanics like you would in a game like Dungeons and Dragons or um, a traditional role-playing game be it domestic role-playing game on the computer, Neverwinter Nights or whatever, or something like a JRPG. Lately, there are a lot of action mechanics, maybe some turn-based mechanics. But this is strictly, you're playing the role of this detective, trying to figure out a mystery. What are your thoughts on Disco Elysium? I loved it. I finished it very quickly. I mean, I, I played it very intensely. I really enjoyed the different approach that it had to how the character grows and develops. Yeah. The idea of the... Mentally, right? The thought... You know, the problem was, like, there were all these really interesting directions that I could have gone, Mm. and I was starting to go, you know, like, oh, yeah, I do want to start thinking about more about, oh, man, I can't remember, but, you know, some odd thought that occurred to me i do want to explore that and then i get into it and go oh wait no 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 i did not want to spend time thinking about this because now i gotta unthink it so that i can think something different right that might actually help me solve this case because i did want to solve the case i I mean i guess i could have played it where i'm just a wandering stumble bum you know for however many hours but i i did want to solve the case and that did sort of restrict what i allowed 
the character to think about. It would have to fit whatever your strategy was, right? You would figure out how you're going to handle these situations and who you're going to interact with and whether or not you're going to do physical things or do things mentally or perceive the environment. And then you could kind of tailor the way you built on your different mental skills. It's really an interesting sort of way that they develop the role-playing mechanics. I mean, it's not like you kind of have your own your your sheet right your character sheet but it's it's done in such a way that just seems so creative yeah creative and natural yeah and you were talking earlier when we were discussing the pathfinder game hey is there anybody that keeps track of your you know are you playing the character that you said you were going to play right and in a game like pathfinder there isn't anybody who's keeping track or penalizing you, but in Disco Elysium, nobody's telling you what kind of character you have to be. Like, um, you know, if you wanted to to think about it in D&D terms, mm. you know, are you a lawful neutral character? Are you a chaotic evil character? Nobody's telling you or labeling those behaviors mm. that way. Right. But you're just doing stuff in the context of the game and all of a sudden you find out you're headed down a, a dark path. You're not going to be able to have good thoughts anymore. Right. They won't come up as options for you. Yeah. If you keep doing jerky stuff, right. you won't be able to not think like a jerk whenever you want to. You won't be able to turn it off. Right. So I really liked that because... In so many of these computerized Mm -hmm. role-playing games where you have a script that you're going through and you're exploring every option of the script Mm -hmm. because you want to find out all the little nuggets of information that you can. Right. In Disco Elysium, you can't just do that. You can't just click on every script option because if you click on a script option that takes you in a certain direction, you might not be able to come back and click on the other script option right. that you really wanted to explore. So you really, you kind of do have to make a commitment to a character type mm-hmm. and move in that direction. And yeah. I liked that I did have to make a commitment. And that's actually, now that I think about it, you know, it's that whole, what would have happened if I'd made this other choice? Right. And in a lot of games, you're able to make all the choices. But definitely not here. Until you make the choice that unlocks the puzzle and gets you to the to the next level or whatever. Right. In Disco Elysium, you're not able to go down every road. Right. You're not able to say, what would have happened if I'd done this other thing? Unless you want to play the game completely again. Or strategically save your games as you're going along. There's also that. Yeah, I will say that I had to do that a few times to, like, the first time I played it, I got caught in the the guy's office on the chair, and I kept dying. I couldn't not die on the chair. Oops, spoiler alert. Don't go to the guy's office until you have a better health level than what you start out with. Right. Because you will die in the chair. I don't know if you had that happen to you. No, I uh, I didn't get too far. I didn't get the body out of the tree, but I had a lot of interactions where I was exploring the whole area and stuff. Had a couple of heart attacks and died. Did you finish died. the game? No, I did not. I did not. Because oh. I did not finish the game because 
Okay, so this is kind of related to something I wanted to talk about earlier, about a new mockumentary that is called Players. It's about esports. It's like a fictitious team that plays League of Legends. I don't know if you're familiar with League of Legends, but it's a it's a multiplayer online battle arena or a MOBA, they call them. It's about this team and how they have a, a rookie that they get on the team that, you know, they pay him millions of dollars to be on this esports team. It's supposed to be parodying F1 Drive to Survive on Netflix, which is a Formula One racing documentary. Mm-hmm. Gamers seem to like it, but it's just... I have no connection to this character. The characters in this show are not likable. I do not have any connection to what they're feeling or what they're seeing. So therefore, I just kind of tune out. I did watch the whole series. It has some good points as far as how the characters were played like regular people. It felt like it was an actual documentary when it really was making fun of these people. I don't like the fact that you're making fun of gamers too, but that's more, it's more about the likability of the character for me. I don't care where these people go. And that's similar to the movie Inception, same thing there, and similar to Disco Elysium. I could not become connected to this character in such a way that made me care about him and where he went and what he figured out. So that. I've tried several times to to play this game, but it just just hasn't happened. I just haven't gotten it all the way through. You know, this computer I'm looking at right now, I've got it installed in this, and I just don't. I, I get to a certain point, and I just give up. I'm trying to get through the whole thing. I can see where it would be challenging because the character is definitely an anti-hero. Yeah. definitely starts out as an anti-hero, and you can tell – from what little information you start the game with, mm-hmm. that the character is kind of an a-hole. And so I accepted that, and I was like, okay, I need a redemption arc here because I don't have an interest in playing a character like that. Right. And the great thing about the way that Disco Elysium was set up is that I could change Harry's attitude Right, um, right. You know, he always had kind of a, you know, a sentimental attitude. He was just hapless. Right. It took a long time, but I was able to make good choices. Yeah. And so you got your redemption arc, is what you're saying. Yeah. I loved the Kim Kitsuragi character. Uh, I just loved very unflappable demeanor. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a, a few entertaining comedic things that happen further along in the story having to do with Kim. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find out, you know, he's got a pretty dry sense of humor yeah. and he's yeah. got an interesting background. I, I really enjoyed his, and, and part of, you know, a lot of what the choices that I made as Harry was, so that you know, to, not to try and impress him, but to not disappoint Kim, right? Right. So uh, He was very disappointed in you starting off yeah right that makes sense focusing on the redemption arc piece of disco elysium and having that carry you like i said i've tried probably a a dozen times started and then just tried to play through it and it just gets to a certain point where i'm just kind of like i don't care what happens to this character but focusing on the redemption arc that would make sense it's like okay so that's my goal 
So maybe that's the way to play it and get through it. I will say it's, it is possible for him to solve the mystery and not have a happy ending, but have a satisfying ending. And not all of the questions are answered. Right. Like not all of Harry's personal mysteries aren't solved. Right. By the end of, uh, but a lot of stuff is explained and the murder that he was, it is possible to solve that, that murder. The other thing I think of as far as how it feels is it's kind of got a film noirish feel mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. The dialogue is being provided by your inner voices <laughs> as opposed to, yeah. that's kind of an interesting idea is that who's narrating this is not necessarily you. It's your inner monologue. I don't know that much about psychology other than there's an id, an ego, and a super ego, but I couldn't tell you who which who does what. Right. It seems like you've got at least that many voices right. inside of you offering commentary on your different options and the different choices that you make. Did you play the version that had all of the dialogue recorded? There was a lot of it and i think they did a really good job the actors were really good so normally it's like yeah click 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 i just want to i can read faster than you can talk and so just get me to the next encounter mm-hmm. but i really i i, I like the acting uh-huh. in disco elysium so i listened and let myself and uh, really immerse myself that way how long did it take you to get through the whole story would you estimate Oh, man. I mean, is it like a 20-hour commitment? Is it a 40-hour commitment? Is it hundreds? Between 20 and 40. I couldn't tell you. And maybe there's actually counter somewhere on the... Maybe it'll give you game stats if you log in. But, I mean, it's not that important. It's just kind of an estimate. I was playing two hours every night for a few weeks. So, Mm -hmm. whatever the math is. Like I said, I still want to try and get through it. And I'll probably just restart it at some point coming up here. But yeah, it seems like an interesting story. And I think the whole redemption arc angle for motivation, that's going to be the reason I finish the game. If I can get into, okay, this guy's done some shitty stuff, but let's turn it around for him. Up till now, when when the game starts, he wasn't doing cruel or mean mm-hmm. stuff. He could do cruel or mean stuff going forward. Right. Um, but he's more more just... Um, you know, almost pathetic in a way. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That he starts out. Doesn't even know his name. Right. Do you have anything else you wanted to talk about to wrap up our discussion on the word role? Wow. I have thought about games in a way, talking about games uh-huh. is a way of thinking about games that's completely different from playing the games. Yeah. And I actually have enjoyed more of this philosophical analysis of the games as opposed to or in addition to the way I enjoy games when I'm playing them. It's a different thing. It's a different type of enjoyment investigating what it is about a game that makes it enjoyable. (laughs) I forgot to ask you this. Was there ever a point in your life where you thought to yourself, I'd like to design, be someone who created I mean, I am a creative person, and I have never thought of a game that I wanted to create for somebody. Okay. Or for, you know, for- it's just not something that you think about. It's more for you about the enjoyment. It's like the difference between making a movie and being in a movie. I've been a DM 
mm-hmm. um, on occasion. And I guess that is like baby steps of yeah. Um, yeah. creating a game storytelling and you're having to come up with motivation and what's, yeah. you know, maybe there's some puzzles and, but there are just so many games out there to play already that right. I don't feel the need to invent one because like, Oh, there's all sorts of these other ways for me to scratch that game. I think more and more video games are not only just something that's entertainment. There are certain games that where it's designed to be entertainment, but it's becoming a way to tell a story. Is some of these games that people have created are complex in their story and they have interesting stories to tell, uh, but there's also a part that's game dynamics too. It's always been, would I want to work in the gaming industry in some capacity? Yes, but I mean, it's never been something I've wanted just to create a game or to make something like, like that. Would I be open to it? Maybe. Creatively, I've never had the urge to create my own game. I can kind of relate to that. Yeah, I think at this point, if you're creating a game, it's like, did you ever write a book? Right. Like, well, I have never written a book. I don't have that story to tell. You know, I don't have a compelling voice inside of me that's saying, here's something that I need to communicate to the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, so in the same way that I haven't written a book, I haven't created a game. I yeah. don't, I just don't have that need mm-hmm. to communicate using that mode of, of communication. Yeah. You know what? It's really interesting. You mentioned the book because just to briefly go back to disco Elysium, the creators of this game, in, which include an Estonian novelist, a name, uh, Robert mm-hmm. Kurvitz and another author named Kara Kender, who were responsible for the stories, there was a book called Sacred and Terrible Air, which was set in this world of Disco Elysium. And it was published in 2013, but it only sold 1,000 copies. So it was deemed a failure, essentially. And from that, the authors kind of were depressed about the fact that they're very creative story didn't go anywhere in 2013 Mm -hmm. but they kept on creating their own world and developing this world and came up with the idea of evolving this sort of oil paint style in graphics to present this story which kind of fits the the overall tone it's kind of a really cool just the fact that they created this company to make this game and it was so successful and reached so many people is just amazing. But yeah, it started out as a book that they wanted to write to tell stories in this world. And it ended up being something that kind of morphed into a role-playing game, kind of a homebrew Dungeons and Dragons type of campaign. And then from that into the game that you see today. So it's kind of really cool. Speaking of redemption arcs, right? Right. Wow. I did not realize that was the origin story. It's really interesting. You can find a lot of other information about uh, why they call the company the the name that they call the company. But it's, yeah, it's really kind of cool. I knew as much about them, this being a sort of a homebrew uh, Dungeons and Dragons game that they developed. But I didn't know that they had a, a book that came out before it set in this world but i think it's in my best interest to try it again 
I just need to set aside some time, come home, hit it for an hour daily. Because it, you got to kind of immerse yourself in it for a while. Yeah. Consistently. Because it is very dense, dense and detailed. And if you leave it for too long, you'd be like, oh, wait, what happened? What was right. I doing? Right. Two days ago. As far as video games are concerned, I'm not in this boat as much anymore. But if you leave a game for too long, it's not the story or that you have to worry about. It's the game mechanics and what buttons do what. And, you know, you, they've got different button schemes and stick schemes for all the different games that you play. So it's just remembering which one that you have to do. It's like similar in this, but it has, I think it has more to do with the story and the way you're playing the character, which is very unique as opposed to remembering the button layout. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many details. You're like, wait a minute. I remember somebody mentioned some, you know, somebody in the in the game that Harry's yeah. run into has talked about this. Oh, where was that person? You know, because yeah. you got to go back and talk to that person. So right. there's a lot of you got to actually remember stuff. Right. I thought there was I thought there was a uh, a transcript that you could there refer back to. There's a little bit of journaling that's able that you're able to do, but, but it's not the not um, all not not the whole thing, right? That's the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think I had to, I had to cheat and write stuff down on a piece of paper. Ah. <laughs> I could remember. You don't remember the days where we where we drew? Well, you probably do. Uh, if you played any dungeon type games where you had to basically make your own map on a piece of graph paper. Oh yeah, I play. I've been playing a D and D game for almost at least thirty years now. Uh-huh. And one of the party members' duties is mapping. And so there's a lot of wait, don't don't move that because the you know the DMs we've got you know these old school tiles that we're using and oh, okay. so the DM will lay out the 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 room that we're in right and the, the mapper will be like no no don't touch anything yet you know because he's still sketching on his, his grid on his grid <laughs> sheet right what version are you guys playing Dungeons and Dragons two oh. So, I know. So it's so really, so you guys no no, no I think it's great. A, it's great it's because uh, I, actually a, a little bit of a homebrew. It's it's Phoebe's okay. Phoebe's D and D. Gotcha. Which is based off D and D version two, but more challenging for the players. Like gotcha. you, know, you start a bless, you can't move or else the bless fails. Specific rules. Mm-hmm. Thacko? Yes. Yeah. I think that after two is when they stop using Thacko. Thacko to hit armor class zero for all you Noras out there. <laughs> for a while there, that was my joke pickup line at the D&D game is, hey, baby, what's your Thacko? <laughs> but let's close the show by saying thank you so much, Tracy, for, for joining us here on the show to talk about the word role. It was really awesome to have you. Definitely want to have you back at some point oh absolutely i have really enjoyed this ben thank you so much for asking me and really making me think about the many types of games that i've played throughout the years on that note thank you so much for joining us on the too vague podcast my name is ben my name is tracy and we've been your hosts have a wonderful night bye bye